0: Hey everyone welcome to disrupting our practice i'm shannon patterson
1: and i'm greg flynn this podcast is for white-bodied leadership and organization development consultants facilitators coaches and trainers
0: this is a weekly podcast dedicated to the exploration of how we practitioners can disrupt our practices those practices where we are unwittingly perpetuating racism oppression and harm And it's all in service to being able to co-create a culture of equity,
1: justice, and healing. So we live in a world that truly
0: works for everyone.
1: Thanks for joining us as we work to disrupt our practice. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Greg. So, (laughs) yeah, so we, we had a guest on this podcast. We sure did. It was
0: really nice to bring another voice into the mix. As much as I like talking to you, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: nice to have, nice to have another another person's perspective in
1: here. For sure, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we we invited in um, a friend and colleague, Adam Slade, um, and we'll share a little bit more about who he is um, in the episode. We did want to mention. We thought that. since most people are listening to this through, you know, an audio only format and not watching a video, which may or may not be available on YouTube, that he is a, his positionality is as a black man living in Chicago. And so that actually probably helps the listener frame themselves in his perspective.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important for everyone to know and to honor who Adam is. Yeah. And I highly encourage people to Look up his LinkedIn and get to know him. He's doing amazing work in Chicago uh, in government work and forwarding all sorts of important work. Um, so please look him up, get in touch. He's an awesome person to know and talk to.
1: We've linked his LinkedIn in, um, in the show notes. And you can also find his Twitter um, on, uh, it's uh, at Chai Slade on Twitter. Um, also linked in the show notes. I'll just name, you know, uh, we we did collaborate with him last year um, on a thing. It was talking about the four levels of racism, which is like really rooted in his experience and his background. You know, the, the the four levels of racism, which gets mentioned briefly in the episode of internalized racism, interpersonal racism, institutional racism, and structural or systemic racism. It was a very powerful. Six or seven sessions that we did with him as part of another, a, a part of a community that we're a part of together um, last year it was very, very cool.
0: Yeah. And I know we would love to have Adam back on and, you know, dive more into understanding the four levels of racism and how they play out. And while it wasn't explicit, um, as I, you know, think back on that episode that we were all three talking together, it's in there. Like the four levels of racism are, we can see how the conversation touches upon all of those yeah. um, and things to pay attention to when we're disrupting our practice. So I'd even invite people to, even with that little bit of knowledge about the four levels of racism, to listen to listen for those four levels and how they're playing out and watch for them in your practice.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to have him back to, uh, to dive deeper into those. And other than that, enjoy this uh, episode with our first guest, Adam Slade. Okay.
0: Hey everyone. Hey, Greg. Hey, Adam. Nice to be together today.
1: Yes, indeed. It's uh, it's really nice to, do, uh, to be joined by a friend and colleague here um, in this space that we've created together for the first
2: time, actually. Yes, nice to be here. Nice to see your smiling faces.
0: <laughs> Same. Nice to start a Monday together. Well, we can just say a little bit about who you are, Adam, and then you could add in anything else that you want. We are just so glad to be here with you. So y'all, everyone, Adam Slade is a visiting researcher at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a doctoral candidate in the Department of Public Administration in the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs. Uh, You got your hands full with that, I'm sure, Adam. And prior to his PhD studies, he worked with government and nonprofit clients for more than 10 years with a special emphasis on racial and social equity in public administration. And we have had the pleasure of getting to know Adam over the last few years, having met in a community of practice. Um, We've had the opportunity to learn from Adam formally and informally, and we just love spending time with you, Adam, and thank you so much for being here. Is there anything you want to say into who you are and how you want to be known?
2: I think you did a pretty good job of the bookmark of my life right now, Um, but... Uh, I think one of the most important things about me is I like to work in collaboration with others and to solve big problems. And I see you two as key partners in that work. So thank you for inviting me today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We um, we were talking just before we got on uh, about, you know, an accountability partner and how much we value you being able to be our partner in that way, in addition to friend and colleague and, you know, help us see what we can't see and feel what we can't feel and really be in this work in a deeper, deeper way. So thank you for that. And also for the, the labor, time, emotion, intellectual, all the ways that you have to put more work in to do this work with us. So we deeply appreciate it, Adam.
2: Oh, for sure. And I think you're selling yourself a bit short because you do see it and feel it. It just comes across differently. And mm. so it's just understanding those thoughts and feelings in, in context and in time uh, to mm. bring us closer together as people. Mm. So uh, mm. you, you can trust your own head and your own heart too in this work.
0: Mm. Thanks, Adam. That actually means a lot. It uh, can feel tricky to reach sometimes, and I do want to reach and I do want to get closer. So thank you for that. Before we dive into what we're going to talk about today, Greg and I usually like to check in and get present. Uh, And just kind of where are we on our capacity? And uh, we'll also want to do a connecting question. It's fun just to get to know each other a little bit and help us arrive here. I know I feel a little flutter, like, oh, we hit record. Uh, We're doing a thing. Uh, So, you know, the check-in helps (laughs) us with that. Um, So check-in, just taking a quick scan of how you're doing mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, you know, whatever might be present there that feels important And let's do that first and then do our connecting question. And so I can kick us off. Let's see. Checking in. Uh, I think emotionally feeling that flutter of nervousness, which makes my head a little uh, slower to fire, I think. Like my thoughts don't come together as quickly. Um, But I am feeling present and excited and pretty good in my body and um Spiritually, it's always harder for me to reach for that one, but this idea of getting closer together actually, like, pings my spirit. So with that, I feel in and present with you both. How about you, Greg? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Um, I'm so. <laughs> I'm really. I'm really. Uh, yeah. Really grateful to be here. Uh, feeling good in my body. A little nervous. A little tightness in my back, but you know that's what. Um, getting close to 50 means I suppose um, I'm mentally really clear and here and emotionally grounded and feeling kind of yeah feeling feeling bolstered um I think you know this is uh, this is the kind of conversation that tends to to nourish and bolster me so I can feel anticipation for it little teeny tiny bit of the twinge of the the nervousness I suppose but um in only in a good way and um, yeah, so from, from the spirit standpoint, it's feeling feeling connected. I feel like these conversations feel connected to something bigger. And so they always help me connect in that way. Yeah, so I am here and ready to dive in with you all. And would love to hear how you're doing, Adam.
2: Oh, well, yes. Well, I'm in Chicago right now. And we are starting the big turn into deep fall. We hit 30 degrees uh, earlier today. And the thin blood is starting to thicken. Um, And the winds of change definitely have picked up. And I've seen that in the anticipation of Halloween plans and Thanksgiving plans and folks uh, coming back from summer vacations and now in the thick of fall time work and the anxiety level uh, creeping up a bit. Uh, And with a lot of local governments going through their budget process and that contentious process being... Uh, something that shuts a lot of other priorities out as well as elections and those kind of things emerging, which also adds to anxiety and overwork. Uh, So I'm aware of all that, although I'm not feeling that myself. I'm feeling uh, pretty even and empathetic to the folks that are experiencing a lot of change right now. And so I feel like I'm in a good space to have this conversation and I really relish these kinds of conversations to figure out new directions forward as we face unprecedented challenges that American society has not chosen to examine in a long time. So, I'm Mm. ready. Mm All right.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's do a little bit of a connecting question. That was very connecting. I feel more grounded. And thanks for naming the swirl that we're all in, Adam, and uh, impacts it's having to so many. I'm curious. Let's start. Let's do Adam, Greg, and then I'll go last. What is something that is sparking your energy or creativity these days, Adam?
2: Yes. Um, Well, recently Chicago had created a citywide karaoke competition. And this is the first in the city's history. And they have uh, tapped bars from all different parts of the city where you could sign up and go sing a song. And to see the turnout and the events that I have attended and how we all can unite around common song and common history in the songs that we pick uh, has been an unexpected joy that was unanticipated, especially for a city of Chicago that is going through election processes, budgets, and, uh, and, and community strife in different parts of the city as we talk about the issues we face, it's, uh, it's a nice little refresher and a new way to connect. And I'm a big singing person, as you all know. So um, anytime I can uh, have a cocktail and sing a good song is usually a good day.
0: That's great. Okay, I know what we're doing when you come to Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> That's,
1: right. <laughs> That's right.
0: That'll push my edge. How about you, Greg? <laughs>
1: It will push my edge too. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. I, I love hearing about that. Uh, yeah. I honestly, the answer that comes to mind when it comes to what's sparking creativity for me right now is is actually this. This project has been um, like really really big for me in that way. It's and it's actually spawned a couple of other projects that are similar in nature. So um, very much. Uh, you know, in some ways, as you were talking about him, I was like, oh, why isn't mine cool art? related thing and uh <laughs> you know so
0: <laughs> it's okay we still <laughs> me, like you greg
1: <laughs> i know i need to i need to i need to i need to find a little bit more uh more outlet and in, in that in that avenue but anyways that's it that's for me i'm uh i'm stoked doing this and I'd love to hear what's up for you shannon
0: uh, this was the first thing that came to mind i'm not just trying to be cool but as you know greg and i don't know if you know adam i do pottery And I've been getting back into making things with my hands and uh, it's super fun. Um, Yeah, and I'm experimenting with glazes and I'm taking this class where we're making pottery shaped like animals and like it's just so not my thing. But I'm trying to go with it because you always learn when you reach into something that's not necessarily where you would go. So I'm having fun with that these days.
2: Well, and funny enough, the song that I chose for my karaoke performance was Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers. So that pottery scene in Ghost comes to mind. So <laughs> unexpected connection.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, love
1: I just want to take you just a step back and let the two of you just have this moment.
2: Yes, um, yes.
0: Well, we'll do some shaping. That's beautiful. We'll do some shaping. And I know this conversation, every time we just hang out, Adam, even our Zoom our Zoom beverage last week is shaping, so I love that, and I think Greg, you were going to help kind of tee up our conversation here about what we're talking about and why yeah. it's important.
1: Yeah, you know, it's you know when we think about um, what it means to facilitate and you know hold space or control space or however we want to think about that, as you know, as folks who are in this in this field of organization development and going into organizations or companies or nonprofits or governmental agencies, which I know you've done all of those, Adam, Um, you know, and as, as white bodied folks, it's, I think it's so um, it's so unconscious to us. There's so many layers of what's happening in a room. That's so unconscious to us. And, And one of the things we're hoping to do with this podcast is kind of shine some lights on those and, you know, elevate them a little bit and wrestle with some of the questions around those and, and, When we think about what gets centered in a room that we're doing our work in, I think is as facilitators, as OD professionals, you know, we often think we're, you think about the work we've been hired to do, right? We're there to center the problem we're there to solve, whether it's, you know, maybe some conflict resolution or maybe we're doing strategic planning work or visioning work. Working, whether it's working with a team or a a other group of people, or doing some work structure work, whatever that looks like, um, we you know we're there to solve a problem, and and very often one of the one of the sayings or um, yeah one of the sayings I hear in our field not not infrequently is like trust the process. You know we have a process for a reason. Let's trust the process and trust that through the process all voices will get heard all concerns will be brought forward and then we'll be able to take all that information and weave it in and and it will be a way of you know kind of leveling the playing field and getting all voices in the mix and you know one of the things that's become clear for me and over the over the last few years and in conversations with you and i I know in some of the stuff we collaborated on last year was like actually that's that's far far from the truth um and what ends up, what tends to end up happening is that this other thing that's in the room with us ends up still continuing to get centered. And that thing that's in the room with us, we could call it whiteness. We call it white supremacy culture. Um, and it's, uh, it's a way in which um, the, the organization, the culture around us, the, our, our larger societal culture will help to make some of us comfortable, make sure some voices get heard, but still um, erase others, erase voices that are at the margins of that or directly under the thumb of that. And even though we have a great process, that doesn't mean that all the voices are being heard and it also doesn't mean that people aren't being harmed. And so the question, you know, I think we wanted to talk about, well, what does it mean to center people of color or to center these voices that are not non-white voices and what does it mean to understand what it looks like when whiteness and white voices are being centered. Um, and so as, as I'm talking and becoming increasingly aware of just how long I've been talking for and realizing just <laughs> how much that's centering my own voice, I want to um, to see Shannon, if there's anything you would add to that, um, and then just like lay this down here and, and um, yeah, be in conversation with you, Adam, about this is including... Um, how is it happening right here, right now? So,
0: nothing to add. <laughs> Over to Adam, for <laughs> sure. <laughs>
2: well, yeah, that, that's a really big question, um, and uh, and I know there are some folks out here when we talk about a uh, white supremacy culture and whiteness uh, that think that this is just about race, and mm-hmm. it isn't. It is. Uh, a lens with which we can use to make sure we are being responsive to the needs of everyone in the space. And so for women, that sometimes means that they are hyper aware of sexism that is happening in that space or disempowerment of folks that might be more able-bodied in the space. And they also Mm -hmm. need to have their needs considered as well. It's just in America, for whatever reason, uh, probably our history, that race is the bugaboo that we can never really explicitly talk about. Um, mm. and, and it's just really challenging to have one, even a vocabulary with how to how to describe what's happening in the spaces that we occupy, and then have the courage to say something at the risk of offending uh, or marginalizing or causing even greater harm. And mm. so there's just a cloud of fear, and that's what the elephant in the room really is, is a cloud of fear in mm. engaging each other. So, Blindly trusting the process is neutral and is non-confrontational. And I think that's often why OD practitioners default to that to get to the outcome that they're seeking. Uh, But often context is omitted. And so if you're there to solve a problem, why does the problem exist in the first place? Hmm. What isn't being communicated? Why does someone from outside of the organization need to come in and facilitate this conversation? And a process doesn't get us past that context. And we, even though we would like it to, even though we think it would be easiest and has an air of procedural fairness, uh, mm. it, it often still marginalizes or excludes or puts a, ve- a veneer of fairness on an unfair situation. Uh, and so thinking about power dynamics, thinking about uh, other exclusionary practices that an organization uh, encounters is usually uh, some pre-work that needs to be done if you actually want full participation for all those in that room to solve that problem. And so I would always say it takes more than one conversation and it takes a real relationship. And if we don't have a real relationship with the people we work with, I think that's usually an indicator that (laughs) there's a deeper problem than a facilitation can address.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Adam, I'm sitting with the one kind of bigger thing, I think, which is, you know, whiteness shows up even in the decision to go get a consultant or a facilitator. Um, Is that, am I understanding that right? That even that is one way or one thing, if we were thinking about disrupting our practice and slowing down how we do our work, like that would even be like, why are you bringing us in? Why are you not your own people or
2: even Mm -hmm. things
0: like that? Is that would that be fair to say?
2: Yes, and I I definitely think that sometimes leaders don't have the language yet to facilitate that conversation, or don't have access to uh, the knowledge or communications from their staff to better understand the situation on the ground. A lot of times, these relationships or miscommunications or uh, disempowering forces occur outside of the view of the chief executive, and so they even have a hard time accessing it. Sometimes there has been trauma in that space that has fundamentally broken trust. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you need an external partner to just begin to have that conversation and to uh, minimize the, the trauma that those that are directly impacted face. And that's really what centering those most impacted is centered around is including folks that have a lot at stake in that conversation from a disempowered uh, vantage point. And that can be in any, it could be race related. It could be gender. It could be anything. Um, But that concept of, okay, what do you need to be included in this conversation and to feel like you belong and that you will be heard and accommodated. All of those assurances need to be grounded in some form of reality before being able to proceed to identify uh, solutions or pathways forward, and that takes time. Often, that the OD professional isn't granted in the contract that they are uh, that they are executing, um, and sometimes just building trust is the is the project that the OD consultant is brought in to start. And in that mm-hmm. case, uh, there are a lot of different techniques that can be used, as we all know. Um, but we also have to make sure, okay. Do these techniques accommodate everybody that will be participating? The process is is not race neutral when there are people of different backgrounds in the organization. Mm -hmm. And so let's not just trust the process. Let's see if the process matches the people, matches the context. And where can we make some accommodations to make sure that they feel included and to make sure we're evaluating the history that that organization is feeling in order to have the most impact and to start to build trust?
0: Mm-hmm. Just really hearing the importance of relationship uh, in all of this and building that relationship and building trust and who should be doing that work is a whole other question, it seems to me. Um, I have a question. Greg, did you have a question?
1: No, keep, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> there's stuff percolating. but go, Yeah, I going. got
0: lots percolating. I can also hear the, you know, in organization development and leadership development, there's also a whole separate or adjacent field, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but I so I can hear like some of my colleagues maybe thinking or even saying to the client or to us, it's like, well, but what there isn't this isn't trauma or this isn't DEI related work. This is just our employee engagement survey. And so, you know, we just need to do that, or we just need to do a training on giving and receiving feedback. And so I'm curious how you would slow that down or what you would invite someone to be thinking about that kind of has that question in their mind.
2: Yes, I, and the fact that they are different disciplines kind of highlights the, the need for them to be included. If if OD and DEI are separate disciplines, and OD does not have DEI in mind in practice a lot of the time. Those accommodations or inclusive practices are not included in process design. And this leads to uh, unintentional exclusion and inequities that unless you experience them personally are harder to identify. Hmm. Because we have trusted the process, we've done the research, although it's usually developed through the eyes of white practitioners. So they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. see where like doing a round robin circle might not empower everybody to fully express their voice, mm-hmm. especially if you are in the minority in the group and do not have common experience with the majority in the group and in design and in, in, in theory, it's, it's equal, it's accessible mm-hmm. in practice. It isn't. And so mm-hmm. understanding that those dynamics exist and calling them out earlier in the process will help us to accommodate that in a new way. Uh, but also, we have to value the response that we would get, and so mm-hmm. a lot of times processes are designed to be minimally, uh, minimally. I don't know what the word is. Well, well, we want to maintain safety. We want to minimize conflict. We want to mm-hmm. uh, come to some tacit agreement in that space through the engagement without it being explicit that oh, we know what the solution is, or We are uncomfortable with ambiguity or difference of opinion. Uh, We want to have everyone have a collective hive mind by the end of it and to feel good at the end of it. And that's an implied goal of a lot of our work instead of sitting through the potentially vastly different needs that different members of that community face and how to address them. And if people don't feel safe in saying, you know what, I'm a single mom and I need this, but my company is very rigid on the hours in which I can be in the office, are they going to bring that up? Mm -hmm. Likely not. Mm -hmm. If a person of color feels excluded from meetings or email threads or decision-making processes, how many times are they going to say something before they just go quiet and try to uh, go with the flow or uh, tread water until they find their next opportunity? Yeah. And that's a lot to ask of any individual. Yeah. Mm So. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I, I'm finding myself thinking about like you know the kind of terrain you're describing, needing to get through, in order to have these conversations, and and it, and and really kind of seeing in like kind of a stark contrast of the where the safety or the potential safety for a person of color or another marginalized person in the space comes into conflict with the comfort. Of the majority or the white-bodied folks in the space, and you know, and recognizing like if we think of we could think about this from multiple levels, right? Like one level is like an engagement, like we're in a room, we're actually doing a thing with a group of people, all the way zoomed out to like looking at culture, looking at you know the kind of top to bottom wall to wall culture of an organization. Um, and there's, I think, probably different answers to this, but like I'm wondering if you have a sense of like. Like questions, those of us, you know, white bodied uh, facilitators can be holding for ourselves as we think about how to navigate those things, right? Because in some ways, it seems like we need to kind of push up against that comfort for the white bodied folks in order to help to create the safety mm-hmm. while also not creating a harmful situation in an instance, but then also thinking about the larger scale mm-hmm. of the work.
2: Yes, that's definitely a challenge. Um, One of the things, and and Shannon, this goes really well with your pottery uh, creative mind, is facilitators are the shapers of the conversation. And they can decide what it looks like, how quickly it, it moves, how much water to use, how much time to take on any given task. And so I think that's really, for white leaders, Creating the space for all to participate and to anticipate some of those needs, and inviting multiple ways for people to express their needs in a minimizing in a, in a minimally confrontational way, is often the best. And hopefully, there's some relationship with these people prior to the community conversation, so that you get to know them a little bit uh, and understand some of where they're coming from before going into major strategic decisions or uh, the purpose of whatever the facilitated meeting looks like. Uh, and, I, and I'll give an example. Uh, I was a victim of police violence in my teenage years. And I was in a meeting uh, during the trial of uh, Jason Van Dyke, who was the police officer in Chicago who shot Laquan McDonald 16 times. And uh, as someone who had a gun put to their head by Chicago police, Uh, that whole trial was distracting at a minimum for me in the Mm -hmm. workplace, let alone uh, since I work on racial equity based issues with governments and communities, it touches the work that I engage in every day. And I was in a meeting during the trial and a friend of mine texted me that he was found guilty. And immediately I started to cry. And it was an involuntary relief and release of fear of that's pretty much it of a fear and i could not contain mm. myself mm. Uh, and luckily i was able to step away from the meeting and the facilitator of the meeting paused and said we can continue this meeting later let's talk about what impact this has on our on our city and a lot of the downtown offices closed earlier that day because the decision was going to be broadcast and there was fear of riots and there was fears of protests and all of these things and so the fact that we even had the meeting in the first place may have been a bit of an oversight um, mm-hmm. when there was mm-hmm. that much palpable fear in, of, of uncertainty in Chicago on that day. Um, but we took the time to talk about the disparate impact of this decision on not only our commute times home, but on the people that have had uh, experience with that kind of violence in their, in their life and what that means going forward for our city. And so if we were better aware of that earlier Mm -hmm. or uh, had the mind to check in with people prior to that, uh, maybe that breakdown in the meeting could have been avoided in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that's a very specific Adam issue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, if I'm a major participant in that meeting, how present am I going to be? And I I just even like the way you had us check in on where we are just so that we are aware of how receptive we are to have this conversation and ready to dig into these issues. And Mm -hmm. most meetings don't start that way. So I think that's a good practice right from the beginning. And hopefully Mm -hmm. there's enough trust built that someone can say, you know what, there's a major trial for Mm -hmm. uh, a a police officer who murdered a child coming up and I'm just very distracted. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we should postpone the meeting or any number of things, unless we, unless I'm saying that might affect me, but I would like to proceed and I'm, and I'm energized enough to get through this meeting, but just know mm-hmm. that I might go off camera or might have to step out of the room mm-hmm. or, or something like that. So mm-hmm. giving that person the ability to express their needs is also very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Adam, I'm thinking, thank you for that story and a mm-hmm. bit of personal, yes. directly personal experience of trying to get through a day (laughs) and it's making me think of where we started early on. You said, you know, the context is left out and how important relationship is. Um, so there are ways in which some of our conversation feels so big, you know, like, Oh gosh, I can't go in and do a training because now I have so many layers and we have to spend, you know, four time, four months longer than I thought doing the thing. Um, But at the same time, I guess I'm also feeling like the context of your humans, you know, you're in the room with humans. How are they? What's happening? You know, um, where are we starting from in this moment, even? Um, It's just something I'm kind of sitting with of how do we build relationship in the moment? So there's, yeah, I don't know where I'm going. I guess I'm just trying to like hold all of it from the moments and how the moments matter. I I think the moments matter to everything else. Um,
2: For sure. And I think one of the things organizations do a lot is they have too many meetings because they don't communicate effectively on all those that are impacted by the work that they do organically in their business. So something that could have been an email becomes another hour long meeting. And then mm-hmm. people get frustrated in, into having too many meetings because they just haven't worked out project teams or contributions, 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 <laughs> with their colleagues properly. And they don't know their colleagues well enough to know when they need to be roped in on mm-hmm. uh, on a larger project. And so we then look at meetings as a burden instead of a time to connect and mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. time to share and to learn. And so mm-hmm. holding the meeting space sacred as a space for only very purposeful and meaningful conversation and a time to be in community is probably step one. Is Does this need to be a meeting? What is this actual purpose of a meeting so that when we do meet, we are connecting with each other and building that team chemistry and relationship to get the wider work done?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Just even thinking about like my body was like meeting as a time to be in community my head went, or, you (laughs) know, what would that be like? You know, and my heart went, please, could we do that? Um, so. Yeah. To me, an
2: ideal meeting would be something you would enjoy attending. Mm -hmm. And how many of us enjoy meetings? (laughs) Yeah. Very, very seldom. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. And how, anyway, that's, this, that's We could probably have a whole bunch of conversations about that, but like how even that's not, and, and I, we were talking earlier before we, you know, officially hit record about like how whiteness was showing up in our approach to even recording this podcast, which I'd still love to hear about. But I, but I think about what you're saying is, uh, you know, criteria of a meeting being something you enjoy would probably not even being taken seriously as a criteria. You know, like, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. This meeting needs to be productive and you know, I don't really care if you enjoy it. Um, so even that feels like a disrupting whiteness. And I didn't know if there was like a corollary to, you know, how Greg and I approach setting up this podcast where you're like, y'all are, y'all's whiteness is showing. If you felt like commenting on that and we could learn in the moment, I, I would love a little nugget just because, you know, because I know I do it.
2: Well, and I think that, it, you know, and I, I wish I understood this, but that fear of knowing that, oh, I'm I am a participant in whiteness in America, but I don't know how that is a, a fear that I don't have, I have to say. Mm-hmm. But it's a very real fear. And, uh, you know, it's this is why relationships are so important, because even myself being a, a black man in America, I fall short a lot. Uh, being raised in a gender normative society of the, Mm. of the gender binary pronouns are difficult for me and being Mm. intentional with addressing people by their preferred pronouns is something I have to take energy to ensure that I'm doing properly. And I'm okay with taking that energy because I care about the people that I'm meeting with and that I am talking Mm -hmm. with. And so Mm. even if it takes a little extra effort on my part, Um, that caring and that relationship makes that easier and makes it more pressing for me to respect uh, how people identify. And Mm -hmm. so this is where relationship building accommodates a whole bunch of these issues that we face Mm -hmm. in in breaking down norms of American society that are often informed in whiteness. And and Mm -hmm. just so folks know, like whiteness is a concept. It's just that in America... Whiteness is what is normalized as the dominant culture through a racial identity lens. And all of our history and culture has been defined through a lens of whiteness. And anything that is not within that structure or culture is seen as uh, inferior or abnormal. So anything mm-hmm. that's blackness is not American. We even have, you know, the house, car, two kids, and a white picket fence as the American dream. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could have been a blue picket fence, but it literally is just a symbol of this is (laughs) the ideal family unit in white America. And that is what is considered normal. And anything outside of that is deviant or inferior. Right. And so Mm -hmm. understanding that humanity is complicated, complex, and riddled with challenges and tragedies and unintended consequences Uh, It doesn't mean that someone's abnormal, it means they're living their life. You know, a parent might die of cancer when a child is young doesn't mean they're living an abnormal life. It just means that one of their parents unfortunately passed and they have to navigate life missing that parent. And what does that Mm -hmm. mean? How do we make sure that their needs are included as they grow and mature as an American society? Mm -hmm. And so this, it, it just impacts every element of how we operate as people to stop, reaching this artificial definition of normal that we have set for ourselves to guide Mm -hmm. our, our progress. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, I'm hearing you say, you know, what get, what, what do we normalize? Like we need to normalize something, something different, right? Something will be normalized. And um, there's something about the possibility of normalizing these conversations to begin with. Um, And so Yeah. What, like, I'm wondering, like, what are the, what are the, what, like, for those who are listening, what would you want them to be thinking about, like, as they think about their next, their next, let's say that they're getting ready to, to, you know, send in an RFP for a strategic planning thing for some, you know, random mid sized company. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of questions that you might propose to them as being, things that they should be considering both as they put together their proposal and as they consider winning that proposal.
2: Yes. I would put a lot more information about the organization in the RFP and ask the respondents to design a process that would be maximally inclusive of everyone that's impacted by uh, the activity that the RFP is hoping to address. Hmm. And so often like in technology implementations, they have a discovery period to figure out all the systems that you have and all the business needs that you have. A good RFP would have that defined earlier Mm. and they would have that defined in terms of the people that they are hoping this project will serve. And that could be customers as well as internal staff. And having that kind of awareness of where your organization is in terms of recruitment, in terms of retention, in terms of, Uh, what diversity your organization has so that you have as many viewpoints on humanity as possible as you're achieving your mission. All of these topics are things that we often turn to an external consultant to help us think about because we don't think about them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And often we don't think about them because we're afraid to think about them or we're in a compliance mindset and we know that we have to do it even if we don't understand why or, We've been told or we've seen the news that DEI is a thing right now and you have to be doing something DEI related. Otherwise, you're going to be left in the dust. Mm. And, and we don't know why we have to do DEI or do a strategic plan to address X need or Y need. But we'll do it and hopefully we'll pick it up along the way. And so it's an undefined and unprecise RFP and you get a lot of lukewarm, uh, lack of meaning based <laughs> responses That you'll Mm. spend a lot of money on and realize that you picked the wrong consultant or had the wrong question in the first place and then you wasted people's time and the next time you want to convene it's not going to have the same urgency or attention or or value Mm. so selecting the right person to guide you and to ask the right questions earlier is uh really the job of leadership to have a better grasp of their organization and it's a tall task because they are blind to a lot of the ground-level things that impact the day-to-day operations of any organization. But uh, that is the challenge a leader faces in the 21st century.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, I hear the importance there, Adam. I want to just make sure I'm tracking here. So there's, in a discovery process, get a lot more information about the organization. Um, in the discovery process, like get really... Well, be incredibly participative as much as you can, and trying to understand the the landscape and the history of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I'm. There was something else I was going to say. What else did you hear, Greg? Just.
1: Well, Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's it sounds to me like a big part of what you were saying, Adam, was that very often, both internally in organizations, they haven't done the the work of understanding who is actually there and and what voices need to be heard and who needs to be included in decisions. Yeah. And then that, that can very easily lead to bringing in a facilitator or a consultant that is um, either not quite well equipped or isn't really being coming in with the right questions in mind. Um, It's the wrong project essentially. And so I'm hearing both kind of like, That like this is if this is pretty much the case, and I I think you're, I I think that's pretty real, (laughs) pretty um, head on the nail, you know. Um, It says to me that maybe as consultants, part of what we need to be doing is we need to be um, doing more in our own scoping work, right? And like, and and in our as we're kind of interviewing potential clients, asking them questions that help them for kind of reframe or like think about the questions that they that they need to be asking.
2: Absolutely. And I think a good RFP response, even with an ambiguous RFP, would break that down. They, they would say, you want to engage in a strategic planning process. Have you included all employees in the scope of this process? To what degree do you want people to provide feedback or to co-create a vision? All of those questions should be a follow-up. So a good RFP process would have a question and answer period as well, baked into the response cycle so that respondents have a chance to look at the requirements and then ask clarifying questions uh, to get a better sense so that everyone can benefit from thinking about the issues facing that organization Um, and to learn from external experts that might have some cutting edge techniques or learnings that they would like to offer and and utilize for that client. I know Mm. I'm engaging in a pilot project right now doing just that. So uh, figuring out what leaders need in order to have this conversation, not only with their, uh, their re- direct reports and their staff, but also with other stakeholders that they would encounter in the political realm. Mm. And so how would I talk to city council about DEI needs that I'm facing as the leader of my government organization? Mm. That's been something that's emerged in a pilot that I'm working on right now. And, you know, what does leadership look like from that position of power and influence in the midst of other power and influence in that in in that in that organizational relationship. Mm. And so, yes, a good a good practitioner would know what other questions to ask to get to some of the root uh, challenges facing that organization.
1: I, um, uh, one of the things I want to name real quick is just tracking the time and, and want to respect yours. And that one of the questions that's popping up for me in relationship to this is I can imagine, you know, we've number of a lot of, or, or somewhere between a number of, and a lot of white bodied OD facilitators, coaches, trainers, consultants listening to this. What, like, you know, for myself, one of the questions I, I have is what am I missing? You know, what am I what am I getting wrong when I think that I'm centering some, you know, wanting to center the right people? What do I need to be tracking in myself and paying attention to, to know that I'm actually think I might be doing it right, but I'm doing it wrong and I'm centering and continuing to center myself and centering white comfort.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is where I need your help actually, because I don't know what's necessarily coming up for you in that moment, but from what I've seen sometimes, you know, in times of tragedy, especially, it's just hard to know what to say in the right moment. And I think about a situation that occurred in, in one of our convening spaces where we, we had just seen the murder of several Asian women in, in Georgia, Hmm. and we had an Asian woman in the group. And this was, uh, a topic that had emerged in the check-in question. And what do you do when someone is facing a fear response or trauma that is targeting one of their identities? That's a really hard thing to do. And so sometimes you want to, you know, not speak on behalf of that person and you want to give them the floor to share what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some folks are not ready for that. Some folks are. So what do you do? Uh, Especially in a time of trauma, if you can do, if you can ask how they would like to proceed quietly without putting them on the spot—that would be helpful to see what they would like to do without putting pressure on them. Um, but sometimes it is okay. What you know, putting yourself in the place of whatever the issue is—if it was directly impacting you, how would you want to react? Mm-hmm. How would mm-hmm. you be present in the space that you're occupying? And mm-hmm. establishing empathy outside of your a limited lived experience uh, would be the most human way that we can act in a community space uh, and that would help us better guide how to respond in different situations. And so if someone is talking too much, we, as a leader can say, we would like to make space for others to talk. Um, If someone is probing someone's personal experience because they're curious you might hold people back and say, I would invite you to reach out to that person on a one-on-one basis if they're receptive to better understand their experience and maybe reframe the question so that that learning can proceed without putting those people of color on the spot to inform Mm -hmm. folks through their own personal life. Uh, And so those are two things that I can think of right off the top, but uh, what would you like to be done to you (laughs) <laughs> the, the golden rule mm-hmm. in, in that mm-hmm. same way. And hopefully having enough, in, enough life experience with a diverse group of people can help refine that approach. So if you don't work mm-hmm. with any people of color or people with a different gender identifications, you need to start doing so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. You need to get to know the people in the world to understand what they might need and to figure out ways to interact with them outside of your your own little bubble.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think Saddam, I remember, I remember that space and, um, you know, how to, how to be with someone and hold someone, you know, in a trauma response. It's strikes me as, I mean, what I hear you saying in my experience was it's both reach out to that person, be with them as a human. And there's, and it's tricky to do that in a way that, you know, to help understand what they need. Um, mm-hmm. And it brings me back to, I think, by way of of maybe wrapping up here is, um, you know, Greg, you mentioned the terrain, and we covered a lot of ground, Adam, and there's so many layers, but also the importance of our own internal work, right? And these, you've talked to us before about the four levels of racism, and so really starting with our own internal understanding of what's present in us, what are, I guess it's hard to know your blind spots, because if they If you knew them, they wouldn't be blind spots. But really, getting to know for yourself what what you get and what you don't, and um, you know, doing your own labor and effort and work um, to understand these things is a big part of moving through the the rest. Um, I can feel my maybe this is my whiteness. I go on to make a nice little bow on top of this, you know. So therefore, (laughs) that's why we do that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, it's, it is, it c- comes back to not just that, but that's a huge part.
2: Um. Yes. And I think, you know, having some resilience in that, that individual work and did not put a bookmark on in the book and never finish it mm-hmm. is, is part of the challenge because it makes us uncomfortable. And I've, Think about a lot of HR directors that I've worked with that say, "Well, you know, we would like to hire more diverse candidates, but our standards are too high." Ugh. And I and I always cringe with that because yeah. there's a lot of reasons why people might not apply to a job. There are a lot of ways that we recruit folks that we don't uh, acknowledge outside of our our view to be meritocratic. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, th- there was a survey done by Pew, I think, that said seventy percent of all jobs filled were filled by people known to uh, uh, an employee of the organization. Mm-hmm. So we naturally network as people to recruit people. Yep, that's just how we recruit as human beings, and that mm-hmm. is an exclusionary practice for people of color that aren't in those industries. Right, it just is what it is, mm-hmm. and so acknowledging that as on the front end helps us even think about, okay, I know that this process is not a meritocratic one. How can I be more inclusive? And Mm -hmm. asking that question and using that lens in your recruitment practice is just one way out of a million that we can be more inclusive minded in the work that we do. And to know that we never can stop learning new ways of bringing people closer to community. And even myself, who have worked with this explicitly for the last six years or so, and indirectly just through my life experience, um, I'm always learning something new. I'm always attending seminars to stay rooted in principles that I learned a long time ago. I still read new books that come out. Uh, I still refresh myself on my understanding of history. Uh, and, you know, it really, it, it pains my heart to hear how some people don't learn about history or have a, few, a, a skewed, uh, a skewed experience with history that has been done to make sure that we don't feel guilty about the founding of, of America, and then how we then entrench ourselves in well, is Christopher, Christopher Columbus a, uh, a pioneer or an oppressor? And we stay there, we stay in that space, and then we get mad at statues to Christopher Columbus instead of just acknowledging, well, we know that the introduction of smallpox and other practices wiped out a lot of communities that were native to America. We know this. We don't need to continue to to debate whether Columbus is a good or a bad figure. We need to move past that. We need to understand impact and how that shapes our society today. And that's where we should focus, not on the Mm -hmm. trivial good or bad Twitter wars that occur in our common discourse. It is, how do we make our country better knowing our history and honestly evaluating our history.
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you Adam. I'm you know, I'm sitting here feeling those questions and just like aware of the part of myself that's like you, you know, like being asked to step over a threshold I don't know what's on the other side of, right? Like it the 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 dichotomy or the that kind of back and forth around Christopher Columbus is a great example because it's I know what to do with if there's two sides, I know how to choose sides. You know, mm-hmm. if there's anything we're good at here in this country. It's choosing sides, right? <laughs> so, um, and you know, I'm hearing you invite us into a, into an inquiry that is actually a little it's beyond like my my own lived the way I've been conditioned, right? And mm-hmm. um, and so I'm you know I'm feeling the challenge to like confront my own conditioning, to disrupt the to disrupt that conditioning, to disrupt the practice that we're in. Um, and to not necessarily do it, it, you know, the, the tendency is to want it to be, feel really smooth and like, I understand that I'm competent and I'm, you know, I've, I know what the outcome's going to be. Um, but the invitation I'm hearing from you is like, we don't really know any of those things and we're all kind of in this sort of place together and, um, we need to go there together in a lot of ways. So I'm really
2: appreciating that challenge. Absolutely. I think you've summed that up very well. And, you know, being comfortable with a, an America that is ambiguous, that is ever changing, is actually the nature of America. We don't know who's going to come to our shores and how they're going to impact our culture. We have a history of that, even if mm-hmm. we don't want to acknowledge it in the same way or if we want to recast it in a in a new way. I, like I remember looking through history where Irish Americans were considered uh, unclean or even in newspaper articles would be colored in as black people. Mm-hmm. But that has changed a lot. Now, we all celebrate yes. St. Patty's Day and, and frolic around the city of Chicago and die our river green. And we embrace that part of our identity. Well, we can do all of that with everyone while also acknowledging that we have work to do to repair past harm and present implications of that past harm. We can still do all of it together. We just have to be willing to open our eyes and to do it together.
0: Well, thanks for joining us today, Adam, for a little bit of doing it together. Um, And, you know, here's to continuing to do this together. So just really
2: appreciate it. I look forward to it.
0: Really appreciate the conversation today. So,
2: Yes, thank you for inviting
1: me. Mm-hmm. absolutely so good to have you and so you had so many so many things to think about and look forward to uh to having you back the not too distant future and uh yeah thanks a ton for your for your support and friendship and everything you've done today thank you
2: until next time
0: yeah all right take care
1: yeah bye y'all Bye. bye